All you have to do is flat load your feet so you can snap load your power package. That way you can amplify both lag and drag through impact fix. And as long as your number two power package doesn't break down, then you can achieve maximum centrifugal force with minimal pivotal resistance. It's just not that hard. How many of you have ever been discussing the Bible with someone and they look at you about the way you looked at me as I described hitting a golf ball? There are many people outside of the church that have no clue what we're talking about when we say things like sanctification and justification and scheme of redemption. I'm not saying we should dumb down those words or phrases, but maybe we need to do a better job of defining them, describing what they mean to us and how they affect us. There are even people within the church that look at you with a look of bewilderment when you start talking about these things. You know, there is one such word that we talk a lot about, or maybe we hear a lot about, but don't necessarily define properly, and it's the word Trinity. Now, Trinity is not a biblical word. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible. And because of this, there are some Christians who think we should avoid it at all costs. I mean, it's not in the Bible, so therefore, why do we talk about it? Why do we bring it up? The word atheist isn't in the Bible either. And I think we all know what an atheist is. Pornography is not in the Bible. But I think we all know that pornography is one of those things, an action that we shouldn't engage in because it's harmful to us. It's sin. Sunday is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. But we know that Sunday is the first day of the week, the day we gather to worship our Lord and Savior, right? Trinity is one of those words that maybe not is a biblical word, but one that certainly the concept is found in the Bible. And one I think we need to pay attention to. It's a word that needs better defining from us. We probably never heard it preached, but we probably never heard it explained, just stated. We probably never heard it preached, but, you know, we, we, we talk about it, we sing about it. I mean, the last line of a song that we sing called Doxology reads, Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's good theology. But what does it really mean? You know, it's the doctrine that we believe but never discuss. Either we all understand it, and so therefore discussion is not necessary, or none of us understand it, so therefore discussion isn't possible. You know, sometimes I think we just assume things, and we need to do a better job of defining them. I've heard it stated this way. If you try to deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. If you try to understand it, you'll lose your mind. Maybe that's true. It's hard for us. It's difficult for us to understand sometimes. But I doubt this is well-covered material this morning. I don't know if any of us have ever heard a lesson on the Trinity. But we should talk about it. We should understand this biblical concept. It's something that, that we should grasp because it means so much to us as Christians. You know, this is a God box. You probably saw this up here wondering what in the world he's got up here. This is what we call a God box, and every one of you has one of these. You may not realize it, but every one of you has one of these. And you know what's in this box? Everything you think you know about God. You get to set the parameters. You get to define the boundaries. Because isn't it easier to worship a God we understand? And so we want to put God in a box. And some of that comes from our teaching, from Bible class teachers, from our parents, from sermons that we've heard. Those are all good things. But as we discuss the Trinity this morning, you're going to have to be able to open up your box a little bit. Because you can't contain God. 
And if the Trinity teaches us nothing else, it teaches us that there are no boundaries to God. That our finite mind just cannot wrap itself around so many things when it comes to God. Some things we just have to step out in faith and trust and move forward, even though they're a mystery to us. And such is the case with the Trinity. So open up your God box this morning and be willing to not set the boundaries, but allow Him to breathe and to move. You know, the doctrine of the Trinity can really be summed up like this. Three equals one. Now, you know about my struggles with math, and I'm not good at math, but I think we all know that three doesn't actually equal one in the world of arithmetic. But it does in the Bible. But people have a problem with this. It doesn't make sense, they say, that three equals one. And so we've been accused of being polytheistic. You know what that means? That we believe in a lot of different gods, not just one God. Now, we don't believe that. But some accuse us of that. Some religions disavow this teaching and say that, well, Jesus wasn't deity. He may have been the Son of God, but he wasn't deity. And therefore, it makes more sense mathematically to them. One plus one plus one equals three in their mind because Jesus wasn't deity. Holy Spirit's not on the same level as God, and so therefore it makes more sense. But that's not a biblical concept, as we're going to see. Three does equal one when it comes to the wholeness of God, and these three distinct personalities. You see, when we talk about the Trinity, we are talking about three divine persons who function as one. We often use the term Godhead, and that would be uh, an appropriate term. It's used often interchangeably with the Trinity, but when we talk about the Godhead, we're talking about the three personalities, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Here's what we know for sure. Here's what the Trinity is all about. First of all, God alone is God. Secondly, God exists simultaneously in three personalities. And third, all three personalities are equally and fully divine. Now, I want you to look with me at Genesis chapter 1. Here's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God alone is God. He created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. But he himself is not created. He always has been. He always will be. When God commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go, Moses asked this question. Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. That phrase, I am who I am, means the self-existent one. The one who always has been and the one who always will be. Which means that God exists independently of any cause. We read in Isaiah 45 and 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is no other God. As Christians, we are not polytheistic. We don't believe in many gods. We believe in only one God. God alone is God. We believe in the Trinity, but that doesn't, believe that, that doesn't mean that we believe that, not, that God is not God alone. We believe in one God, which means that we are monotheistic. Now, as we've talked about before, we can have other gods in our lives that we serve, whether it be money or entertainment or work, whatever it may be, But we should be monotheistic. We should understand and believe in and serve the one true God. God alone is God. There is only one God. There is only one God worthy of our worship and devotion. Because only one God, only the God, 
could show his power and might by sending the ten plagues. Only God could part the Red Sea. Only God could destroy his own creation with the flood. Only God can control the weather. Only God can bring dead people to life again. No other God is omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. None. He alone is God, and he is the only one worthy of our worship. In Deuteronomy 6 and 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. James wrote, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So here we have clear scriptural evidence of the oneness of God. But that doesn't mean that we don't have clear scriptural evidence of the threeness of God as well. Take a look, John 1 and 1. It states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 10 and 30 reads, I and the Father are one. That's Jesus speaking, of course. In John 8 and 58, Jesus makes a similar statement to the one that God made to Moses before he went before Pharaoh. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus here is claiming to be self-existent. And then in Acts 5, 3 and 4, we read, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. I want you to notice that Peter says here that Ananias had lied to the Holy Spirit. And by lying to the Holy Spirit, he had also lied to God. We could go on, but hopefully you see that the Bible presents repeatedly things about the Son and the Holy Spirit that could only be true of God. So what does this tell us? What well, tells us that all three personalities are on equal footing. The message is clear that the Son and the Spirit are not simply like God, but in fact, as much God as God is himself. So, we have the evidence of oneness. We have the evidence of threeness. But we also have evidence of three in oneness. So, let's go further. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just as much divine as God. They are just as much deity as the Father. They are one with God. But notice Mark 13 and 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So here we see that the Father is not the Son. In a sense, they are two separate and distinct entities, right? Over in John 14 and 16, we read, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. So the Son is not the Spirit. They are separate and distinct. In Galatians 4 and 6, Paul tells us that because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Thus, showing that the spirit is not the father. They are two separate and distinct entities. Confused yet? It can be rather confusing sometimes for some people. That look of bewilderment comes as you try to describe to them what it means to understand and grasp the Trinity, or this biblical concept of the three in oneness of God. Here's something else. In the Great Commission, Jesus states that his followers should baptize disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the name of indicates in the authority of or by the authority of. And so 
we have no problem showing that God has all authority. But here we see that the Father has all authority, but also that Jesus assigns that same authority to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. We have scriptural evidence of the oneness of God. We have scriptural evidence of the threeness of God. And here we have scriptural evidence of the three in oneness of God. Besides the Great Commission, we have these statements throughout the Bible that some call Trinitarian statements. One of them is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. It reads, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is what we would call a three in oneness statement statement. All three personalities of the Godhead are represented or mentioned here by Paul, and he mentions each of them specifically, but he also mentions them on equal footing with one another. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, we read these words, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You know, like Paul, Peter mentions all three personalities of the Godhead. And by doing so, he intonates equality among all three. We talked about this, I guess it was last year. We talked about the Holy Spirit. We had that Members' Choice series, and you guys submitted questions. And many of you submitted questions about the Holy Spirit. And certainly there is mystery around the Holy Spirit. And certainly there are things about the Holy Spirit that we don't understand. God tell people often, I don't think the Holy Spirit is an out-of-work author. And those who believe that the Holy Spirit is only found in the Word will say to me, well, then what do you believe it does? I'm not sure completely. I have some idea based on Scripture. I don't know that any of us completely understand what it means to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at baptism and what that does for us daily. I mean, we see hints in Scripture, right? But I think we get so scared of being so far to one side or the other with our extremes that we just kind of avoid it altogether. Because oftentimes we say, well, you know, I, I believe in the indwelling of the personal, uh, of, of personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So you believe you can do miracles? No, I don't believe that. I do believe it's a personal indwelling. A lot of times we just avoid any discussion on the Holy Spirit. I know when I go speak somewhere and they're giving me the topic. You know, I love when people say, why don't you come and speak and just bring your best lesson. That's always great. So I can just, I can just do whatever, whatever I, I want to there. But I know when they're handing out topics, I always say, please not the Holy Spirit. Please not the Holy Spirit. Please not marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Please not marriage. And there are some difficult teachings. There are some things that are just difficult to grasp, and, and the Holy Spirit is one of them. But we can't avoid it. And we can't. We can't pretend that the Holy Spirit is some sort of outlier, that it's an it and not a he. Scripture doesn't paint the Holy Spirit that way. And so we've got to be careful here. I want you to notice something in Genesis chapter 1. This is where we started as we pointed out that God alone is God and God is one. He created everything. I want you to notice verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Did you catch the pronouns there? Let us make man in our, image, in our, in our own image. It's encouraging to me to know that I was made in the image of God. 
But the pronouns here suggest that all three personalities of the Godhead were present at our creation. At the creation of the world, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit were all present. Let us make man in our image. Who is the us? Well, none other than these three personalities that we've been talking about. It is a thrilling notion to know that in some spiritual sense that we were made in their image. Now, I took Spanish in high school. I took it for three semesters because it seemed like every year they were changing the requirements. And so I took it for three semesters. I wasn't very good at it, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't real good at English. Now you wanted me to conjugate verbs in another language. I mean, that was difficult for me. But the opportunity came up for me to go to Mexico City on a mission trip several years later, and I thought, fantastic. Now I get to use that Spanish that I learned for three semesters in school. So I go to Mexico City, and guess what? They don't speak the Spanish that I learned in Spanish class. I went to El Salvador a few years later, and they don't speak the Spanish that I learned in Spanish class. At some point, our knowledge means nothing if there's not application. It didn't matter how much Spanish I learned if I wasn't able to apply it. And the same is true here. We can know about the Trinity. We can understand how the Godhead works, at least to some degree. And we can, we can maybe grab onto that. But how does it apply? What does it mean for us? Is this just good information to have? Or is there application here? And what is the application? How does this help me? Because as we've said, every sermon should be answering a question, so what? So here we have all this information. So what? What does the Trinity mean for us? What difference does it make? Well, here, I'll tell you. First of all, I think it shapes our prayer life. You know, we pray to God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. You believe that? We pray to God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, as part of the model prayer, Jesus instructs his disciples, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our prayer is to God, and Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So we pray to God, we do so in Jesus' name, or by the authority of Jesus Christ. Praying in Jesus' name is a prayer of surrender. It is a prayer that basically says, your will be done. But there are times when we don't know how to pray. There are times when we have difficulty in our prayer. We need guidance. We need intercession. That's why Paul wrote in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. But he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In Ephesians 2 and 18, Paul says, For through him, Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Prayer is through Jesus, in the Spirit, and to God. Now, a logical question that many people ask is, that, does that mean that we can't address Jesus in prayer? Does that mean that we don't address the Spirit in prayer? Well, the Bible is replete with passages that show uh, prayer addressed to our Lord Jesus Christ. It only makes sense that if the Godhead is made up of three distinct personalities, that they are all one, then it wouldn't be wrong for us to address Jesus or even the Spirit. 
I mean, if they're all on equal footing, if you understand what I'm saying. What applies to one, whether it be prayer or worship, has to apply to all. To communicate with one is to communicate with all. But I think a, a good way of representing this or looking at this is that prayer is to God through the Son in the Spirit. But the difference the Trinity makes is also it shapes our salvation. You think about this. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, then you're not saved. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, you have no hope of salvation. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, he is just a good man who lived a good life, but ultimately died a martyr's death in the end. Jesus has to be God in the flesh in order for our salvation to mean anything. Only one who was fully man and fully God could suffer as the Son of God at the same time. And so the Godhead means everything to our salvation. And what did it mean when Jesus said that he would be leaving the disciples, but he would leave with them the Comforter or the Holy Spirit? And so we have, again, these three distinct personalities that shape our salvation. But also, the Trinity shapes our fellowship. If you notice, the Bible presents very clearly that the three distinct personalities of the Godhead are all one and they all live in perfect harmony with one another. They are a model or a representation of what our fellowship should be. God doesn't want Lone Ranger Christians. He doesn't expect us to practice Christianity on an island. The church is the greatest social network ever established. And so we have this fellowship this dynamic social network for the purpose of caring for one another, sharing with one another, bearing one another's burdens, all of those one another passages that Paul mentions in his letters. You see, when it comes to the Godhead, God, who is a God of love, created us for fellowship. He created us to be in fellowship with him and with fellow Christians. The Christian life is all about personal fellowship with the triune God. 1 John 1 and 3 reads, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so here, John speaks of fellowship on three different levels. We have fellowship with the brethren, fellowship with God, and fellowship with the Son. All three persons of the Godhead were involved in your creation. All three persons of the Godhead were involved in your salvation. And all three persons of the Godhead are involved in intimate personal fellowship with, with you, with other Christians, because you need God. You need Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the church. You need this fellowship. Never underestimate the power of fellowship. All too often what I notice as a minister is when people need the church the most, they turn away from it. When they need the church the most is when they turn their back on her. I mean, it seems to go hand in hand. If someone is going through a major struggle in life, you talk to them, have you been reading your Bible? Have you been going to church? No. We need the church the most when times are difficult. Understand how the Godhead shapes our fellowship. 
understand how it shapes our salvation, how it shapes our relationship with God and with others. We need this community. We need each other. You know, many seem to want to stuff God in a box. I think one of the biggest perils in the world of Christianity today, and I use that term loosely, but I think one of the biggest perils in the world of Christendom maybe is a better way to put it. You scan the religious landscape, what you see is people creating a God of more manageable proportions. If I can bring God down to my level or make him just a little better than me as a human being, then that's easier to grasp. And so God is reduced to a divine Santa Claus or some cosmic therapist, or he's there to simply bless me. We come to God in prayer with some divine wish list. God, please grant me all these things. And when he doesn't, we become disappointed because we've created a God that's not the God of the Bible. We have lost our high and mighty view of God, the God of the Scriptures. But when we stuff God in a box and we draw boundaries set by ourselves and not Scripture, then we fall. And our relationship suffers. If nothing else, the Trinity should teach us to open up the box. In fact, the Trinity is a box cutter, isn't it? You can't contain God. And I know there's some mysteries there that we want to understand, and it's just easier for us if we can draw the boundaries ourselves, but that's not the way this works. Even if it's difficult, we've got to embrace it. Embrace all of Him. Allow ourselves to be shaped by the Godhead and enjoy all of the, the pleasures that that brings and the difference that it makes in our lives. So I want to encourage you this morning to let God out of the box, to think bigger when it comes to God and the Godhead. And if we can help you this morning in some way, if you're struggling, if you need the prayers and support of this church family, if you're ready to set up a Bible study, or maybe you've been studying and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, then let us do that this morning. Whatever your need is, come now as we stand and as we sing. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful 